So again, I just want to honor your practice and such a gift you're giving yourself, giving the world and taking this precious time to have been here for this retreat. And for us as teachers, it's such an honor to serve you and see the the benefits of your practice that come forward. Everybody on this retreat has benefited from this practice of loving kindness. For some folks, folks it may be more subtle, but you may see the benefits really come forward in big ways when you leave the retreat. We're planting the seeds, so we're trusting, having confidence in this practice and the the seeds taking root, the plants growing, the flowers coming into bloom. And this really is a practice for the whole of our lives. This practice, this practice of mindfulness and this practice of cultivating loving kindness, cultivating these four Brahma Viharas, the beautiful qualities of the heart, the divine abodes. I was looking back today to my first retreat, uh, my first retreat here at Spirit Rock, a five-day retreat, and it was a Labor Day, Labor Day retreat. It was in 2001. So 2001, September 2001, 9-11. And uh, I really, in that retreat, fell in love with the Dharma and felt a level of dedication to practicing with the Dharma. A few days after the retreat ended, I traveled to Montreal for a conference, an airport conference, because my career was in airports. I worked for the San Francisco International Airport. My job duties included overseeing operation, security, and safety. So there I was in Montreal, and 9-11 hit. Um, of course, um, it was a terrible day. 3,000 people died. Many more have died since as a result of the exposure to the chemicals around the World Trade Building, World Trade Center. Four planes crashed, and the entire aviation system was shut down for three days. So I was stranded in Montreal and having this responsibility. And I felt a level of peace. Actually, it was so deep and surprising, this level of peace that was carrying forward from the retreat. And I was on the phone day and night. I had, I think, a $1,500 phone bill at the hotel and I think over a $2,000 phone bill from my uh, cell phone. And, uh, but I found time to sit for the inner sanctuary, the sanctuary within the temple referred to. And I also sought the sanctuary outside that there was no meditation group in Montreal that I knew of. I don't think True North, a meditation center in Montreal existed at that time. But I looked for a sanctuary. I went to a church across the street a Catholic church. I wasn't raised Catholic, so I have no baggage. <laughs> and I walked in, the doors were open, and it was 
really quite beautiful just to be with other people at a mass who are, who are saying prayers. And so it was in, uh, Montreal is French and English speaking, and this was a Spanish speaking mass. <laughs> uh, I didn't understand a word, but the feeling of being together in Sangha felt like a support. I managed to get back after uh, three days and it, uh, I would describe it as a tough period because we had to ch- totally rewrite our rules and regulations. We lost 40% of our passengers, so our revenues took a nosedive. My world was kind of turned upside down in a matter of hours as a result, as a result of that accident. But for the next few months through that roughest period, this peace that was coming with practice, this inner sanctuary that had been found. And even though I was extraordinarily busy, I kept finding time for retreats, even just many three and four day retreats because that that was all I could afford to be away from, from work. And the expressions of kindness, of caring, really felt like a great support for me too in that period. I remember really still feel being touched by a personal card I received from a police officer at the airport who was sending his good wishes, his prayers uh, for me because of the duties that I carried. And I, I felt like we were all in it together and especially with a police officer had such security, safety responsibilities that the good, good wishes really that were being expressed help support and carry me. And when we bring our expressions of loving kindness through not only our intentions, but our actions, we really bring this level of caring and kindness out into the entire world. I remember too the kind of the, the feel in the country, the feel in the world was one in that emergency crisis situation, kind of everybody came into the present. What commanded people's attention was that disaster of 9-11 that happened. And the sense was of goodwill and kindness and compassion. It was an immediate response from people throughout the world. It felt like a real opportunity for the world to come together toward peace and um, may not have been the case. but And there's a sense of equanimity that could be felt too, that in that crisis situation, coming in the full presence, the recognition that things couldn't be different, but as if the heart of the world opened with kindness and compassion in those days and weeks and months that followed. I was so grateful to have found the refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, and finding that inner sanctuary and the outer sanctuary to be able to come here to Spirit Rock for retreats, for, for su- support of Sangha. So we've been taking refuge for these last uh, nine days, soon 10 days. Now nine days total, nine days total. We've been taking refuge together, forming community, forming Sangha, 
And we have this opportunity to continue to take this refuge with us in the world, to bring our practice fully into our lives, knowing that in any moment we can open to that refuge of Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. So tonight I'm going to speak about bringing the Brahma Viharas into the whole of our lives, these divine abodes, through our intentions and our actions, deeply supported by the paramis that Bonnie spoke about last weekend and deeply supported by the Eightfold Path of Practice. This Eightfold Path of Practice that the Buddha taught leads to the very end of suffering. I'll talk about some, just to begin with, some practical tools and tips for bringing metta practice into our lives. We can, for some people, they commit fully to the metta practice. There are practitioners here who this is their entire practice of when they sit is metta practice throughout the year, an inspiring practice. For others, it may be a certain amount of time in each sitting that they bring in the metta practice, or just even from time to time. For me, I have a metta season. My metta season, the last three years, has been June, July, June and July, where my practice of sitting and sitting meditation is almost entirely a metta practice. And it's such a great thing that we can drop this metta practice in throughout the day when we're walking down the street and in a grocery store line, anywhere. We can just drop in the phrases or the good wishes of metta for you or I'll drop in our full set of phrases or I care about you. A great tool for travel. A great tool when there's turbulence on the plane, you're feeling a little fear. Just dropping in metta. Probably dozens of times I've been on flights where I've offered metta phrases. It's actually much easier to practice sitting meditation on a plane for most people with metta phrases and sitting uh, with insight meditation practice. And we can offer the metta to everyone, everyone on the plane or just to ourselves. We can always offer metta, always offer metta. I was recalling uh, my hospice practice and one time in my volunteer work being on a shift and there was a resident who was really struggling. The nurses who had done all they could to support this resident, but there was still a lot of struggle. And the nurse, um, I was good friends with Temple. I didn't, hadn't met Temple at the time, but uh, she told me she was good friends with this spirit rock teacher. <laughs> And um, so this nurse and I were speaking to each other, what can we do? And at almost the same time, we both said, we can offer metta. It's always there. We can always offer metta. And it's said that a heart filled with loving kindness cannot be overcome by fear. This beautiful antidote for fear. I love the term that Anushka used the other day. I had her permission to do a little further exploration of the term gorilla, gorilla metta. This is gorilla, G-U-E-R-I-L-L-A. 
And in this time in our, in our country, in the world, where there seems to be so much hatred, so much division, it is kind of an act of being a gorilla. And I looked up the Merriam-Webster de- definition. It's, uh, this, what I, I think of it as kind of a radical love, this gorilla, gorilla love. Merriam-Webster refers to it as actions or activities performed in an impromptu way, often without authorization. <laughs> Dispersing meta without authorization. It goes on to say it's against the regular way, real activities, much like the Buddha spoke of being practitioners practicing against the stream. I also find it really helpful in practice, especially with sitting practice, to bring in resolves. So if you're sitting at home, if you decide to go home and experiment with just practicing with metta on the cushion, say for the next two weeks, four weeks, three months, whatever you might experiment with, to find that place in your house that maybe is an altar or uh, a Buddha and make a formal resolution. I vow to only practice with metta for the next month. That vow has really supported me at times over the years because inevitably there's going to be waves, right? There's going to be waves of the metta practice. There's going to be times where nothing as much is happening or the the mind wanders, uh, near and far enemies arise. There may be a temptation to shift to insight meditation. So having the resolve can really support us in sticking with the metta practice. Last night as I was thinking about the idea of being uh, of guerrilla metta, I was imagining a whole political movement starting in the country of Buddhist guerrillas practicing with loving kindness. So this practice of metta that deeply supports the purification of the heart ultimately supports the purification of understanding, of understanding of the truth of the way things are, the Dharma. Supports an opening to contentment, to generosity, to joy, to compassion, to equanimity. Supports a sense of having enoughness through the sense of interconnection that we establish with the practice of metta. And a sense of having enoughness that deeply supports renunciation renunciation of the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion that are at the deepest roots of suffering. So that's why this practice of metta, of loving kindness, is important not only in our lives outside, but also in our insight meditation practice for those continuing on retreat. Cultivating the quality of loving kindness, bringing this forth, will deep, deeply support renunciation on the path, support the deeper understandings. An inspiring quote from Deepama on the potential of metta, of opening in a boundless, unconditional quality of loving kindness to all beings. From Deepama, before I used to discriminate, this is my friend, these are my relatives, and there was an attachment. Now I feel loving thoughts and metta towards everyone, 
I don't discriminate. I don't discriminate. I don't say this is my daughter. I have to give her more attention. My love feels the same towards everyone. Pretty inspiring. That's, that is a true, fully developed quality of metta. I was reflect. I guess I was doing some reflecting back as I was preparing this talk. I was also reflecting back on returning from a retreat 12 years ago. And I had done a six-week retreat at IMS, Insight Meditation Society. I think Sally was one of the teachers there. And I felt the calling to really devote myself fully to the practice. I felt like I had to quit my job so I could fully devote myself to practice. But it wasn't in the cards for, for me to become a monk. I had a partner that I loved, still with. I had a job that I felt I could do, do good. A lot of opportunities for practicing sila. So I decided I just had to find a way to bring the practice into my life while still being in the working world, engaged as a householder. I really deeply committed to that. Maybe three or four months later, it, it hit me. Well, that is what the teachers had been saying all along. <laughs> but I'd been making this sharp dichotomy between retreat practice and my sitting meditation. So that was one category. And then the rest of my life. And there was quite a bit of stress in the rest of my life, especially in, at work. And the sense of the heart not being fully open. So there's kind of this swinging back and forth, the heart really opening up on retreats, coming back into the world, going back to my job, the heart relatively open, but then fading away and the heart really closing up. And the real sense of, of dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of that. So the practice of devoting myself more fully to practicing in every moment of my life, just that intention really was transformational. Transformational for bringing more happiness into my life and really supporting the depth of practice of understanding on the path. At the heart of bringing the practice into the whole of life, for me, was a particularly wise intention. Uh, why, wise or right intention, of course, right mindfulness being very important. The whole eightfold path. But right intention, the intention of renunciation, of letting go, letting go of greed, aversion, delusion, letting go of, as a, for me as a boss, needing to be in control, attaching my happiness to outcomes, the intention of kindness, of metta, and the intention of compassion. That's simple, those intentions. So it wasn't always so by any means, and I'll share more about that, but that was the deepest intention that was set. It recognized the right view, the, the first path factor these first two path factors being the wisdom factors in the Eightfold Path. Right view, recognizing that actions have consequences without exception. 
recognizing that there is the four, there are the four noble truths that lead to the end of suffering, that there is this possibility of peace, freedom from suffering. So the quote from Jack Kornfield that I think captures this importance of linking the contemplation practice to the relational practice of being in the world. Do not believe that meditation and contemplation are the fulfillment of the Buddhist path. Inner peace, freedom, and joy develop only when paired with the outer teachings of virtue, respect, and mutual care. The foundation of the Dharma is relational, built on generosity, virtue, and loving kindness. The path to human happiness and liberation require right intention. Right intention of renunciation, loving kindness, compassion. I've missed one part I've got to add on. So require right intention, Jack goes on, and intentions free of greed, hatred, and cruelty. So it, it gets directly at this quality of renunciation. So these can be great supports for us leaving retreat. Just this, this continuing intention of kindness and caring, not just about carrying forward the phrases into our practice, but carrying forward this basic intention of kindness, basic intention of caring, the commitment to non-harming. This goes right next door to compassion. So a couple examples of, of yogis that uh, I've known over the years who really moved me in the way that they set the intention for kindness in their practice and in very clear and simple ways, but through direct action. Uh, one yogi who's a barista at a Starbucks in downtown San Francisco. And you can imagine the challenge in the morning, 40 people online, desperately needing their caffeine, late for work, not very friendly. And her commitment is to really being with kindness in her job. The intention of being kind to every customer. Not always so, I'm sure, but she has that deep intention of connecting and returning again and again to that simple intention. Another practitioner told me how he worked for a high, high-powered law firm downtown and uh, not a very friendly workplace environment. And he recognized the importance of generosity in this practice. So he started bringing in food that he prepared himself, a dish he prepared himself once a week, putting it in the kitchen for other people in the office to enjoy. He said at first a couple of people actually asked him, what are you up to? Why are you doing this? <laughs> but he said people started to congregate in the kitchen, started talking to each other in a way they hadn't before. Kindness coming forward, generating, generating this kindness. And then other people started bringing in their homemade dishes too. The way this loving kindness and generosity builds on itself. In my own work, I kept having that intention to check in. You know, to check in before a phone call, before a meeting, in the middle of a conversation. Is the intention one of kindness? Is it one of caring? Is there an intention of non-harming? 
I probably miss 99% of the time, <laughs> maybe whole days at a time. But the more that I stayed with it, the more those grooves and patterns began to be established. And it really support, supports practice in a way that the, almost like we change the neurology of the heart and mind so that very naturally these innate qualities of the heart come forth, become the natural response of the heart. When I first started, I also started talking. I started talking at work about kindness, the importance of kindness to each other in the workplace, uh, forming kind of working committees about how we could be kinder to each other, how we could support each other better, talking about caring for each other and caring for our, being compassionate for our guests, the, the passengers. Our passengers became guests rather than just passengers. And at first when I did this, I, I had the same reaction of that yogi who brought food to the office. Some of my staff I worked with said, why are you talking about happiness at work? We're at work. As if happiness and work couldn't go together. But, <laughs> but all beings want happiness, want safety, want health, want ease. All beings want human connection. So we really bring a gift forward when we practice with kindness and we start talking about kindness, expressing kindness throughout our day. It was powerful too for me in my practice to bring more acceptance in, this force of renunciation, the letting go, letting go of outcomes, this powerful thing that we can still have goals and plans in life, but we can let go of the outcomes. It's such a relief not to attach our happiness to something specific and concrete because then it opens to possibility. It opens to mystery. It opens to creativity. And it opens to a deep level of trust in the letting go. I let go of needing to be the one in control, the one who knew what was best. And I actually found the greatest wisdom came from, in effect, the Sangha the Sangha of the people I worked with. A really great benefit is I learned with this approach of kindness and caring and renunciation, the less I did, the better things ran. Also very humbling. <laughs> so when I finished my career a couple of years ago, it was I left with such a feeling of gratitude and appreciation that I'd made that change 10 years before to bring the practice fully into my life because then I felt like I was leaving my career having had the heart connection with the people that I worked with and having really cultivated sila in the workplace, really feeling that that, that was a, such a precious opportunity and I was grateful for all of that. I think if I had left my job 12 years ago, as I might have at the time, if I, when I felt that call to leave my job, I think I would have missed out on that. So it's a real benefit to the practice of establishing those heart connections and refining the practice of sila. 12 years ago too, I also recognized that because my heart was closed, I needed to bring in volunteer and service work. Uh, I dropped my work as, as a board member because I realized that ultimately wasn't satisfying. What was needed in my practice was a direct heart connection 
So I returned to being a hospice volunteer, the hospice work I had done in the 90s during the AIDS crisis. I uh, returned to being a hospice volunteer. And I know there's many of you here on the retreat who are doing this direct heart work in your, in your daily life, in your jobs as educators or healthcare providers or human services providers. So it may not be your calling, you're doing the work already. But for me, and maybe for some others, this can be a great tool to open the heart, the human connection, open the heart to compassion, open the heart to all of the Brahma Viharas and supporting the, the deepest wisdom that can arise with the cultivation of the Brahma Viharas. In my time as a hospice volunteer, the instructions for volunteers was to sit, listen, and breathe. Sound familiar? Very, very similar to insight meditation. And that was actually, that, that was the only gift that I felt I was providing. I didn't have any other skill but to, to be present. Be present with a heart of acceptance, with a heart of kindness, allowing the space for others to express their emotions and feelings, to allow some space for healing, forgiveness, for acceptance, for the heart opening to love. It was amazing to see sometimes the transformations that could happen in weeks or days, sometimes in an hour, a complete transformation of the heart, the release of the heart. This gift of presence with the intention of kindness and acceptance is something we can really bring to the world, to our loved ones, maybe sometimes to strangers, to just be present, give space, listen deeply. It's a beautiful practice. I found too with a hospice care that I could really trust the heart, it opened up a deeper level of faith that I could trust the heart that also meant trusting the Dharma. I found when I was a hospice volunteer so often, the words and the actions didn't come from a thinking process whatsoever. I would just find myself touching someone's hand or stroking their head, sometimes saying I, that I love the beautiful qualities of their heart. It was never a thinking process. It wasn't me that was doing the talking or the touching. It just emerged from this heart of awareness, this trusting of the heart that comes forward and this opening to really a greater capacity of the heart than we might have ever imagined, to be able to hold deeper levels of suffering than we ever might have imagined that both support the connectedness in the world and support our path of practice. That ability to open more deeply to suffering that will support the direct realization of the first noble truth, especially important for those who are continuing on for the next 10 day of insight meditation practice. This reservoir is really a reservoir of loving kindness. It's limitless. We don't have to hold anything back. There's no limits to our own hearts and being able to offer loving kindness to the world. 
I wanted to tell just a short story of how I bring this practice of kindness and compassion on just a very practical level into my life. This is um, a while ago, I was, uh, went to see a show with my partner. Uh, it was a, a musical and a comedy. And it was six, the 16th in Mission. So if you know San Francisco, it's kind of right in a pretty tough neighborhood. There's a lot of suffering, a lot of drug and alcohol addiction, people drug who are addicted, a lot of people who are homeless. And this particular night, as we walked through that neighborhood to the theater, I felt that my heart was closed. I was just barely aware of it. I felt anger towards seeing the suffering. Not something that usually comes up for me. And I sat through the first half of the show and it was, it was funny, but I wasn't laughing. I wasn't enjoying it. And then the intermission came and I thought, aha, I have this practice. <laughs> What's going on? I'm suffering. Just bring that simple act of compassion. I'm suffering. And just immediately saw that a friend had told me a story earlier in the day. It was a difficult, painful story. I just froze around hearing it. Didn't want to kind of process it, sit with it. And so because it was pushed down, this aversion rose up instead. I didn't need to go into the story when I was in the theater. I could just, with a simple shift of offering kindness and compassion to myself, in that moment, everything changed. And this tool is so often available to us. Then I loved the rest of the show and I laughed. And I walked out of the theater and I saw the scene of the homeless people on the street and the people who were suffering from drug and alcohol addiction. And there was some sense of acknowledgement that I could look those people in the eye, see them as human beings. Not some great overflowing sense of compassion, but just a simple human connection. Sometimes compassion is just that recognition of suffering, the wish to end, wishing it to end, the quivering of the heart. But sometimes action comes forth. Action often in the form of generosity. So a story I so deeply moved when I heard about this 15 years ago, I learned that um, now my mother-in-law, my partner's mother, um, was serving a meal once a week to the homeless people. And this was in her town in the Central Valley. And her husband would set up the table. She'd prepare a meal. Uh, they, they only speak Spanish. I think it was probably only Spanish-speaking uh, people who were homeless. It was just six or eight people. And um, it started growing over time. It's a great act of generosity that she was doing. And she asked us, this was maybe eight or nine years ago, she asked us, would you pay for construction of a big, she asked my partner, I don't speak Spanish, as you know. <laughs> so she asked us to uh, pay for construction of a concrete, um, kind of a patio, a very large patio, so it'd hold a lot of people for tables. And then a big wooden arbor to provide shade, because it can be 105, 110 degrees in the Central Valley. And uh, my first feeling was, of course. And then I started looking at, well, what will this cost? And there was a pulling back, like, does this really make sense? And then the remembering, the practice is, with generosity is to recognize 
the impulse and to act on the impulse. So then, of course, we paid for that. And her program, I call it a program. It's just, it's not a program. It's just her individual action. Now it's 25 or 30 people and she has friends that come in and help cook the food. Other people who have set up the tables. It's really grown. You think of if only one out of a thousand people would do something like that. We never have a homeless person going hungry in this country. On my own practice of generosity, it's three key things of watching, watching for the impulse, having the intention to act on the impulse, um, the importance of giving, giving without expecting anything in return, and, and then honoring the generosity of others. And it's a practice because I catch that sometimes the impulse is missed. Sometimes there's a resistance that I experienced that time. Sometimes we catch after we've given the expectation that we did have an expectation of getting something in return, even though it didn't register. So that's a rich practice. As I was reflecting on the, the virtue, the sila of my mother-in-law, it came to me that uh, the impulse to give further, that I now need to, with my partner, pay for the construction of a bathroom that's accessible from outside. Because right now, uh, the people that she's serving have to go into her house. And um, so the impulse is there, and now the intention is there. And now I've told you, <laughs> it's recorded. <laughs> I have to do it. <laughs> And I actually shed some tears when I felt that impulse and it registered. Because it's really come into the practice that just how important this practice of generosity is in purifying the heart, in supporting the uprooting of the deepest forces of greed and aversion and delusion that cloud the heart and mind, that prevent the heart from being fully released from all confusion. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to practice generosity. So the quote from Maya Angelou, I have found that among its other benefits, generosity liberates the soul of the giver. So another story of generosity and the potential of, of a freedom that comes along with it is a friend who lives on the East Coast. Uh, he was in, he's in San Francisco a lot. And he, I said, how are you? And I saw him and he said, uh, I'm, doctor says I'm doing fine. And I said, well, what's up? Why, why are you at the doctor? I just donated a kidney to a friend. <laughs> and uh, his friend was going to die without a kidney and he was a match and he did that. It's pretty extraordinary. And he'd been, uh, a few months before, he'd been attending my sangha when he was in the city and we were doing the death contemplation for a few weeks. Uh, and he said how much that had supported him, that he, when he was afraid of death going into the surgery, that those reflections really supported him seeing the impermanent nature of existence.
And you could sense a sense of freedom in his, a level of freedom in his talking about that experience, his kindness, generosity, and maybe the experience of coming close to death in that way. So then when our hearts open to compassion, it really provides too the, the grounds to open to joy. This next door neighbor, compassion supports presence and tenderness, this responsiveness of the heart. And Nimudita provides the energy to support compassion, the energy you may have felt as we were doing the Mudita, the empathetic joy practice. So Mudita still acknowledges uh, that there's suffering and they very much support one another in their responsiveness. With our practice, we open to both all the joys of the world, both all the joys and all of the sorrows of the world and find this ability, this capacity to hold it all. I think earlier, one of the teachers here uh, earlier referred to the um, Buddha being known as the happy one, that he could see the suffering of the entire world with a heart of compassion. And yet he was known as a happy one. So we really, with our practice of loving kindness, we open our hearts to celebrate, to rejoice in the happiness of others. And this factor of joy is such a, plays such a key role in the path of practice. It's also one of the key elements on the uh, seven factors of awakening, one of the fa- seven factors of awakening, of joy or rapture. And of course, the joy that comes at the very end of practice, the unconditional joy that comes with the release of attachment to any conditions of the world, any material conditions of the world. And when we express our joy, we can really, this is a gift we can offer when we see joys on others, as I said in the Medita instructions, to reflect it back, to express it to others. I remember when the Supreme Court uh, ruled for gay marriage and I'd heard it on the radio and I was a little numb. I just couldn't, I think it was overwhelming, maybe the joy that I might have opened to. And I was numb and I came into the office and uh, several people I work with who are straight were crying with joy and just cracked my heart open to both feel the joy and then I could also acknowledge the suffering that had been present that I really hadn't tapped into of the discrimination that I'd faced as a gay man over the years and finally feeling some level of equality with this court ruling. And then joy also opens when we open our hearts to gratitude, the way gratitude has been coming forward for many folks here on retreat. There's three quotes from three very important figures on gratitude I wanna quote from. Uh, The first is from Piglet. (laughs) Then Brother Steindel Ross, and then His Holiness the Dalai Lama. His Holiness the Dalai Lama would probably like that grouping. Piglet noted that even though he had a very small heart, it could hold a rather large amount of gratitude. And Brother Steindel Rost, it is not happiness that makes us grateful, it is gratefulness that makes us happy. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama, the daily reflection that he offers of, I am fortunate to be alive, 
I have this precious human life. So gratitude too supports loving kindness, supports ease, supports contentment, and again supports that sense of enoughness that supports the renunciation of greed, aversion, and delusion. So another story I just read about a few months ago is of Abraham Davis, uh, Fort Smith, Arkansas. And he had a great story of love, compassion, equanimity, generosity, gratitude. He sprayed graffiti on a, ma- on a mosque, a bigoted graffiti. And he was arrested and he wrote from jail. He immediately felt remorse and let, wrote a letter of apology to the mosque members. And amazingly, they opened their hearts and they forgave him and actually went to the courthouse and asked the judge not to convict him of a crime. But the judge convicted him and sent him to jail for six months and imposed a $3,400 fine. But Abraham Davis was deeply moved by the forgiveness of the mosque members and he was quoted as saying, I hurt, I hurt y'all and I'm haunted by it. But even after all this, you still forgave me. You are much better people than I. So he served his six months, and then he was doing his required service work at Goodwill, but unable to find a job, and therefore unable to pay the $3,400 fine. And he was on the verge of having to go back to jail. So the mosque members on hearing of this paid the $3,400 fine. And Abraham said, there are no words. I don't deserve this. And others saw that news story and sent him more money so he could buy a bicycle so he'd be able to find a job because there were no jobs close to where he lived in a rural area. And this is what the New York Times reporter wrote a commentary about his experience and what he saw. And the New York Times reporter, I'll read from the commentary, at each time when we each at each, at a time when we each see let me start over <laughs> at a time when each side of the political divide seemed sure the other side was crazy and maybe even evil, it was an antidote this story. It helped people see that Americans actually have a lot in common, and that our mutual capacity for tolerance and kindness is quite large. A reader in Oregon said the story gave me something to hold on to, an amulet, a prayer bead. A woman named Linda Brown said the story was a reminder that most Americans aren't the caricatures we are presented with over and over. Abraham was stunned. He expected to be mocked. Instead, he was praised. This flew in the face of his assumptions that he didn't have the right to take up space on the earth. He'd been written off by schools, by society, by the world of educated adults. But here were complete strangers saying that he mattered. So Abraham found a job in a convenience store, gas station convenience store. And um, in an interview with a reporter, he said, it's a great weight being lifted off my shoulders. I don't deserve it, but this act of kindness, it's just wow. And he went on to say, it's like a whole new window just opened up. It's like somebody 
who had been locked up in a padded room and has never felt the wind before. I'm just in awe of this moment right now. I want to say I regret what I did, but at the same time, I don't. He explained, it's kind of like a flower, just sitting there, waiting for the right drop of water to tap its petal, to open up and reveal something beautiful on the inside. Amazing. So it's a reminder, nothing missing in our own hearts can open to the vast purity of the heart, open to break through any false sense of separation whatsoever between ourselves and any other, open to this limitless capacity of loving kindness. I just want to say a little bit more, not much about equanimity, but just about equanimity as a practice in the world in this very difficult time where there's so much hatred that's present. This quality that Bhikkhu Bodhi describes is uh, there in the middleness. I love that, there in the middleness, this balanced heart quality of caring. Often the phrase I imagine that Temple used of, it's like this, it's like this. It recognizes the law of karma, that we're owners of our actions that every action, every single action matters without exception, and that there's an intention underlying every action. So when we cultivate loving kindness, renunciation, compassion, we're cultivating what is wholesome, and we're cultivating the qualities that will bring forth the deepest level of realizations, the deepest release of the heart. So I've really been drawing from in my own practice in this uh, last couple years, great leaders in the world who practiced from a place of great equanimity but brought forth great love. The great clarity that comes with equanimity and the strength of voice that comes from equanimity. Maha Gosananda, who was the patriarch of the Buddhist community in Cambodia during the Khmer Rouge in the 1970s. A third of the country, country's population was annihilated. He walked through the refugee camps in the neighboring countries, handing out the metta sutta on paper, handing that out, the metta sutta we've been chanting. And just his presence, with a presence of this deep heart of equanimity was such a gift to the Cambodians in the refugee camps. And the inspiration of Martin Luther King and his comment that we will match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. Do to us what you will and we will continue to love you. That's the inspiration. That's my inspiration for my practice in the world. We can become like beacons of light when we bring forth these qualities of loving kindness, bring forth these qualities of compassion, joy, equanimity. And there's this great power of love that whatever role, whatever we may want to do in our country now, when we bring forth these qualities and we're there in presence with peace, with love, we really find this strength of voice, this clarity that comes forth, recognizing that the 
practice most of all begins right here. And the recognition that love doesn't stand against anything. Love simply loves. Love simply loves. Loving kindness simply loves. And the quote that I carry with me most most often, Sally quoted from, I use this quote also at the beginning of the retreat. It's a little different interpretation. Uh, Hatred never ceases by hatred. Hatred is healed by love alone. This is the eternal law. And it's this recognition that hatred is a dis-ease, a disease, and the cure, the antidote, is love. And it's true both for our practice and the ills in our society that the, the treatment is love. And it's true for our practice. Bringing forward loving kindness for those continuing the retreat here, bringing forward loving kindness and compassion when suffering arises, when suffering is known. Ah, I'm suffering. That's practicing with the teaching of the Buddha. That hatred never ceases by hatred. Hatred is healed by love alone. So we practice with cultivating these beautiful qualities of the heart for the whole of our lives, bringing it into the whole of our lives. Becoming more and more in harmony with society, with our own hearts, with the world as we practice with sila. Understanding that the qualities of the Brahma Viharas that are cultivated are ultimately innate qualities of the heart. You could say innate qualities of awareness itself. So we can always take sanctuary within. We can take sanctuary in Sangha, both in our Sanghas and our communities, the Sangha here at Spirit Rock. And we can bring this practice of loving kindness into the world through our relational through relational practice, through our words and our actions. And ultimately recognizing that this is a practice that leads in the joy, leads in the direction of an unshakable peace, contentment, and joy that transcends all the conditions of the world. Close from words of the Buddha. Live in joy and love, even among those who hate, Live in joy in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. So let's sit.
Thank you for your presence. And we'll have our walking period and return for the last night of chanting. <laughs>